Welcome to the Cleaning and Crime Podcast. My name is Elise, and my podcast is called What It Is because I have a weekly series on YouTube where I post a time-lapse video of me cleaning my home, while at the same time I tell you about a true crime story because I love to listen to true crime while I clean. But some people find the cleaning footage too distracting, or they just prefer to listen to their true crime rather than watch it. So if that's you, you're in the right place. Today, I'm going to tell you about the murder of three-year-old Riley Fox and the infuriating aftermath. And I apologize in advance because this, this story is going to make you mad. Trigger warning, this is a true crime podcast, so be sure to check the show notes on this episode for specific trigger warnings. Listener discretion is advised. Today's case was a request by Candy Ehart on YouTube, and I hope that I said that right. So thank you, Candy, for the case recommendation. Today, I'm going to tell you about the kidnapping and murder of three-year-old Riley Fox and all of the terrible crap that went down afterwards, because it is a mess. The murder is already sad enough, and the cases that involve children are always just the worst. But it gets even worse because of crappy police work, crappy investigating, and political BS. And they end up throwing the wrong guy in jail. So get ready to get mad. Major trigger warning here. We are discussing child sexual assault, child murder, mentions of suicide. It's it's a lot. So listener discretion is advised. This case is a tough one. So let's start from the beginning. Kevin and Melissa Fox were high school sweethearts. Kevin was a little on the shy side, but Melissa noticed him at a volleyball game and she confidently approached him and asked him to homecoming. And Kevin said yes. After that, they were inseparable. Kevin did sports. Melissa was a cheerleader. They were the picture-perfect small-town Illinois romance. Kevin was two years older, and after high school, he went off to ISU. But when Melissa was 18 and Kevin was 20, they found out Melissa was pregnant. Initially, Kevin was terrified. Kevin basically couldn't deal with this news, and the couple actually broke up for a short period of time because he was panicking. But it didn't take that long for Kevin to realize he was meant to be with Melissa, and he needed to man up and be a good father to this baby. So Kevin and Melissa got back together, Kevin dropped out of college, and they moved in together back in their hometown in Wilmington, Illinois. Their son Tyler was born, Kevin got a good job as a union painter, and Melissa was a waitress, and then in the year 2000, the couple got married. A year after getting married, on March 31st, 2001, they welcomed their second child, a daughter named Riley. Kevin and Melissa were doting and loving parents, and Kevin shocked even his closest family members with how easily he stepped into the fatherhood role. Kevin said he felt like he was put on this earth to be a dad. Kevin and Riley were particularly close. They had a really special bond, and Riley was described as a daddy's girl. When friends look back and think about Riley, they think of Riley on Kevin's shoulders, because that's where she always was. Riley was a sassy and spunky little girl, and everyone said she was a heart melter. The entire family looks back fondly at memories made at Kevin's brother Chad's wedding in 2004. Riley was the flower girl and Tyler was the ring bearer for their uncle Chad's wedding. And Riley had handpicked her princess dress based on how it twirled when she spun. When Riley walked down the aisle, she was supposed to toss the flower petals and then take a right into the first pew where Melissa was waiting. But instead, she walked straight up to the altar and hopped into Kevin's arms. All the wedding guests were laughing and Kevin just laughed and carried Riley over to Melissa and handed her off and they both shook their heads and laughed. 
The pictures of this wedding are gorgeous, and Riley was seriously, uh, absolutely adorable. And there was a really beautiful family portrait taken of the four of them, Melissa and Kevin, Tyler and Riley. Everyone's dressed so nice, and they look so happy. But tragically, that would be their last family photo together. And three-year-old Riley would lose her life just two weeks later. In early June, just two weeks after Chad's wedding, Melissa went with friends to Chicago for the weekend for a two-day breast cancer walk. That Saturday night, after the first part of the walk, Melissa and her friends stayed together at a campsite in Skokie, and then the second part of the walk was the next day, Sunday morning. And this was actually the first time that Melissa had left the kids. So this is the first time she stayed away for the night without her children with her. Also on Saturday, Kevin went to a concert with his brother Chad, and the kids were being watched by Melissa's mother. After the concert, Kevin and Chad got some burritos, and then about 1 a.m., they headed over to Melissa's mother's to pick up the kids. Now, normally Kevin would have just let the kids sleep there, but they had made signs and were preparing to leave early to go to the breast cancer walk and watch Melissa cross the finish line. Still, Chad suggested that Kevin leave the kids to sleep at grandma's, but Kevin insisted to stick to the plan so they didn't have to make a detour and possibly miss her crossing the finish line the next day. Chad remembers looking into the back seat at the sleeping kids, and that would be the last time that Chad saw his niece Riley alive. When Kevin got the kids home, everyone was exhausted, and the kids' beds weren't made properly, so rather than making them wait, he just put Tyler to bed on a big cushy chair with an ottoman and put Riley to bed on the couch. Kevin went to bed too, but he had a hard time falling asleep at first, so he watched some TV, and then around 2.30 in the morning, he went outside for a smoke, then he locked the front door and went to sleep. Just before 8 a.m. on Sunday morning, six-year-old Tyler went into Kevin's room and woke him up and said, Dad, Riley's gone. Kevin immediately got up out of bed and started looking around and noticed that the front door and the screen were wide open. Kevin searched the house and the yard, but there was no sign of Riley. After checking with all of the neighbors and nobody had seen her, Kevin called the non-emergency police line. He thought about calling 911, but the way he described it, he was trying to prevent himself from panicking by admitting this was an emergency. You know what I mean? But when he called the non-emergency line, they said, you did the right thing. It's probably not an emergency. Sometimes kids sneak off and it's hard to find them right away, but they always turn up. Police show up, word spreads to the neighbors, and everybody starts looking feverishly for Riley. Shortly after the cops arrived at the Fox's home, Kevin's phone rings and it's Melissa calling him to coordinate how they're going to meet at the finish line when they get there. And Kevin's obviously sobbing hysterical and he tells her, I can't find Riley and the police are here. Melissa said she dropped the phone and collapsed, and then within minutes, her and her friend were on the road driving back to Wilmington. That is the nightmare. That is the nightmare. Like, <laughs> And while driving home, Melissa had a terrible gut feeling that she was never going to see her daughter again. Friends, family, and neighbors were searching frantically for Riley, and police searched the Fox home. There was no sign of forced entry, and Kevin gave the police a rundown of the night and told them he distinctly remembers locking the front door after he came in from smoking, but... The back door was actually broken, so it was unable to be locked. Also, during the search for Riley, police officers also had to respond to the house directly across the street from the Foxes because they suspected they had a break-in. Yeah, their screen had been cut open, and they thought maybe there was some cash missing from a wallet, but they couldn't be sure, and they couldn't be sure how much. And several neighbors also reported seeing a strange car in the neighborhood that night, a red Chevy Beretta. But police at the time didn't really do much at all about that home invasion because nothing was stolen. They didn't link the two events, and they also said that the reports of a suspicious vehicle were not credible for some reason. Afternoon rolled around. 500 people are out looking for this little girl. Some are on horseback, bicycles, ATVs. People were hiking through brush and coming back with scratched and bloody legs. Like people were people were really hunting for this girl. 
A local woman and her daughter were out searching and they were about a mile from the fox's home and she just got this urge that she needed to go into Forsyth Woods. This is a forest preserve with a tributary of the Kankakee River flowing through it called Forked Creek. When the two women got to the edge of the creek, they saw what they thought was a plastic bag floating in the water, but it's never a plastic bag. Turns out it was Riley Fox floating face down in the creek. They screamed and called 911 immediately. (sighs) Riley was found wearing her t-shirt with a pink flamingo on it, but was wearing nothing from the waist down. She had duct tape over her mouth and she had duct tape residue on her wrists, indicating that she was restrained at some point. She also had a bruise on her head, and obviously when Riley was pulled out of the creek, she was deceased. Kevin and Melissa remember a sudden rush when cops just like jumped into their cars and drove away really fast, and so they were hoping like, oh oh my god, I think maybe they found her. But when the police returned, they very quickly and aggressively put Kevin and Melissa into separate police cars and drove them to the station. They didn't tell them what was going on, didn't tell them why they were separated. When they got to the station, Kevin and Melissa were put in separate rooms, and they were left in these separate rooms alone for 45 minutes. Melissa is just alone in her room yelling, what's going on? What's happening with my daughter? Where's my daughter? Why can't I see my husband? Finally, after 45 minutes, Kevin and Melissa are brought to a room where Kevin's dad and brother Chad were already waiting. And while a cop just stood there and stared at them, Kevin's dad was the one that told them they found her in Forsyth Woods. She didn't make it. Obviously, everyone was completely devastated, sobbing. Kevin punched the wall and then his knees gave out and he fell. It was... It's devastating. That was really messed up. Like, I understand that Kevin was initially a suspect because you always look to the family first. But to separate them, to put them in separate rooms, to not tell them that their daughter was dead, to delay telling them that, that's fucked up. Kevin and Melissa said later that they don't know if, like, the cops were just totally in shock that there was a murder in their small town of Wilmington and they just didn't know how to handle it or if they separated them to gauge how they reacted. The autopsy of Riley's body revealed that she was sexually assaulted and she was alive when she went into the water. So the cause of death was likely drowning. DNA samples were taken and sent to the Illinois State Crime Lab, but only a small amount of possible saliva had been collected and it was labeled inconclusive. The creek was searched and based on the currents, they determined where they believe Riley was dumped. Downstream, there was a log jam that trapped evidence and they found a white high top sneaker. And further upstream, they found the matching sneaker, which like never happens. It's always just one shoe, but they found a whole ass pair. They were obviously muddy, and on the inside tongue of the sneakers were written the letters E-B-Y. No other areas of the forest preserve were searched, just the creek. Riley's wake was held five days later, and Riley was dressed in her princess dress that she had worn to her Uncle Chad's wedding just two weeks prior. 6,000 people showed up for this wake. That's a 1,000 more than the population of their town of Wilmington. And even more came to the funeral the next day. Among the attendees were Will County detectives that were filming the attendees. But the majority of the footage they got was of Kevin. They honed in on him immediately. An hour after the funeral, detectives questioned a family friend named Colleen. And after their questioning, they asked her, do you think it's possible that Kevin Fox would be capable? And before they even finished the question, Colleen cut them off and said, absolutely not. Over the next few weeks, investigators kept frequently dropping in on the Fox household. And they seemed to be very supportive of the Fox family. One of the detectives, Scott Swearingen, was the one that was always going over to their house. And he was like playing catch with Tyler, the six-year-old brother. And he was over there enough that the family just straight up started calling him Scott. 
Meanwhile, behind the scenes, there is a very tight race for the Will County State's Attorney in Joliet, Illinois, between the current state's attorney, Republican Jeffrey Tomczak, and Democrat James Glasgow. These two were already rivals. They already had bad blood. They publicly disagreed on everything, elections, court cases, ethical conduct, political views. And Tom Zak had beat incumbent Glasgow in 2000. And now the two are running against each other again. So basically, Glasgow was trying to get his old state's attorney job back from Tom Zak. The race was neck and neck. And Tom Zak needed a win right now because his father had just been arrested for some big scandal. And him and some other guys had been accused of illegally donating to Tom Zak's campaign re-election fund. So there's some bad press. And on top of that, the Chicago Tribune had just come out voicing their endorsement for Glasgow in the paper. So a quick close on a very high profile murder case that everyone is talking about would look really good for Tom Zach and might tip the scales back in his favor. So we've got some political pressure to close this case. Chad, Kevin's brother, was worried. He was worried that they were honing in on Kevin, and he was right. He was following the state's attorney race, and he was suspicious that the detectives were going over to Kevin and Melissa's house so much. And he also didn't like it that whenever Kevin called the detectives to ask if there was any news on the case, they would say, oh, we really can't discuss it. And then they would start questioning Kevin and Melissa. So Chad started trying to convince Kevin to get a lawyer. But Kevin was like, we're innocent. We have nothing to hide. Like, in his mind... Calling a lawyer was something guilty people did, and he was worried that if he got a lawyer, he would look guilty. 16 days after Riley was killed, Detective Scott Swearingen, their buddy Scott, came to Kevin and Melissa and offered to take Tyler to a place that he said offered free counseling. And they're like, mm, okay, great. When they get there, they meet Mary Jane Pluth, who introduces herself as a counselor. And in passing, she asks the Foxes if it's okay if she asks Tyler if he remembers waking up at all on the night that Riley went missing. Detectives are like, yeah, we could just like jog his memory, see if he remembers anything valuable. And Kevin and Melissa were just like, yeah, I, I guess okay. So they gave their verbal permission, and then Kevin signed a consent form without reading it. What really went down was a victim-sensitive interview, or a VSI, that was videotaped. And two detectives watched from the next room. These types of interviews are used to extract helpful information from vulnerable witnesses in criminal investigations. But Tyler wasn't really an eyewitness. Like, he said he never woke up. He woke up in the morning and Riley was gone. So they lied about what they were bringing six-year-old Tyler in there for. It's fucked. And it's... <laughs> what happens next is about to get even more fucked. So get ready to get mad. Mary Jane Pluth was the Will County Child Advocacy Forensic Interviewer. So she misrepresented herself. And she brings six-year-old Tyler into this interrogation room. And they sit opposite each other at a table. No crayons, no toys, nothing to make him more comfortable. She doesn't do anything to start a rapport with him or to get to know him. She just starts interrogating this kid. And it is brutal. She asks him the same questions over and over and over. And he just keeps shaking his head no and saying no over and over and over. Did your dad leave the house? No. What did your dad do when he left the house? Did he take Riley somewhere? No. Where did he take Riley? You can tell me. At this point, Tyler starts crying. Did you see your dad carry Riley outside? No. Did he take her outside for just a little bit? No. She interrogated the six-year-old like this for an hour. He was crying and shaking, and after an hour, he pulls his hoodie over his head to hide his face from her and curls up into the fetal position. And he's sobbing for his mommy and daddy. And this bitch, like, almost, like, disappointed, she's like, 
Well, I guess I don't have any more questions for you. And then shoves a box of Kleenexes across the table at this kid. It's the most infuriating thing I have ever seen. Tyler said no to this woman 168 times. And the lead detective on this case, Ed Hayes, watched the whole thing from the other side of a one-way mirror and did nothing to stop it because he sucks. This seems a lot like the detectives and this counselor conspiring together to interrogate a minor without their parents' presence or informed consent. You know, it's, it's really yucky. It's a fishing expedition. They should have gotten a court order, not lie to Kevin and Melissa. Like, that's fucked up. And Kevin and Melissa didn't even know what went down in this room until much later. Mm-mm. Where is Olivia Benson when you need her? Even after this, like, botched witness interview, Detective Scott kept going over to the Fox house all the time to play catch with Tyler and keeps, like, questioning him over and over. And according to Detective Scott Swearingen, Tyler once said that he saw Kevin doing laundry in the middle of the night And one time, Tyler said, he saw his dad go outside. But he also negated that on different instances, couldn't elaborate when he was questioned further. But those were the two statements that Detective Swearingen ran with. So he ignored the hundreds of no's and just went with the two yeses that he liked. You know what I mean? Now, to make matters worse, an anonymous source came forward saying that they had security footage of Kevin in his car at 4 a.m. on the morning Riley disappeared at the mobile station in town. Detectives get a hold of this footage and they're like, oh, yeah, we got him. Despite the fact that the security footage they have is absolute garbage. And we'll come back to that. Now, this is a small town. Word starts spreading that detectives are looking at Kevin Fox. And rumors beget more rumors. And people in town start gossiping about the Foxes, saying that it looks like they've been dipping into the Riley Fox donation fund and were buying new cars and taking fancy vacations to Las Vegas. Rumors swirled so much that on October 11th, news reporter Amy Jacobson with Chicago NBC5 did a report about the Foxes. And they brought on that anonymous source that had the security footage from the mobile station with their face blurred and their voice altered. And they talked about on the news how Kevin's car was spotted at 4 a.m. and how they were spending all this donation money and buying new cars and taking lavish vacations. And they talked about how it was suspicious that the Fox family did not offer a reward for information leading to Riley's killer. Now, the family was obviously devastated by this news report because it wasn't true. (laughs) So Melissa traded in her car and got a different used car. She didn't go out and buy a new car. She traded it in because she couldn't bear the memories of driving Riley around town every time she looked in the rearview mirror. Like they weren't even living in their house anymore. They were staying with Chad because they couldn't bear to even be in the house. And as far as the trips, they went to Las Vegas once and they went to the Ozarks once. Both of those were for close friends' weddings that had been planned and paid for months before Riley died. And their family had encouraged them to go, like, it would be good for you to get away for a few days, that kind of situation. And about the reward. The Foxes kept asking the detectives to do a cash reward, but the police kept telling them no, saying it was unnecessary and it would just complicate things. So they're just doing what they're told and they're getting dragged in town and dragged in the media. It's brutal. Chad, Kevin's brother, is a stockbroker in Naperville, and he knows that there's actually a pretty famous lawyer across the hall in his building. And he went to go talk to her about his brother's situation. This lawyer was Kathleen Zellner, who you may know from Making a Murderer, the Stephen Avery case, and more recently, the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial. So she famous. 
And she had been following Riley's case. And so she tells Chad, you need to get Kevin in here to talk to me. But when Chad approached Kevin again, he said, no, I don't want to get a lawyer. He's like, I'm innocent and DNA is going to clear me. They, they're processing that DNA anyway. So he refuses and Chad is feeling super helpless. We need more Chads. I, I never thought I'd say that, but we need more Chads. The DNA evidence from the rape kit, however, was sitting at the state crime lab on a shelf because of a nine-month backlog. So it was just sitting next to all the evidence from this case, not being tested at all. Now, Riley was killed in June. By October, Kevin was still the main suspect. And on the 25th of October, a week before the state's attorney election, the four detectives on this case meet with Jeffrey Tomzak at the Will County Sheriff's Office to discuss bringing Kevin Fox in for an interrogation. These four detectives are Scott Swearingen that we know, John Rudiger, Michael Guilfoyle, and the lead detective, Ed Hayes. Now, the sheriff's office spokesperson, Pat Barry, insists that Jeffrey Tomzak had no knowledge of this meeting, and that despite how the timing looks, this has nothing to do with politics. Sure. Now, the evidence that they say they have to bring Kevin Fox in for an interrogation is the shitty surveillance footage that they say is Kevin's car at the mobile station, Tyler's two utterances that Kevin did laundry and Kevin went outside, and a gut feeling. Meanwhile, the actual evidence from the crime scene is just sitting on a shelf and hasn't even been tested yet. Like, what the fuck, you guys? So they decide they want to bring Kevin in for an interrogation tomorrow, and so to prepare for this interrogation, they need to get a polygraph guy on deck, but... All the good ones that they knew of were busy. So they had to get some guy, Richard Williams, who was a Cook County detective who also knew how to do polygraph tests. And he had only done like 90 tests. So he was a noob, but he was free tomorrow. So so on October 26th, detectives call Kevin and Melissa at their home in the evening. And they're like, hey, we have some news on the case. You need to come down to the station right away. Now, Kevin had been awake since 4.30 that morning and worked all day. And when the cops called, he was just about to eat and go to bed. But they're thinking like, oh, this is urgent. Like, it's been five months. And they're thinking, this is it. They're going to tell us who killed our daughter. This is it. It's going to be over. So they quick get in the car and head straight to the station. They tell Kevin's dad on the way. Kevin's dad relays the message to Chad. And right away, Chad's like, I don't like this. They shouldn't be going down to the station. They shouldn't be answering more questions. Like, if they had news... Why don't they just tell him? We need more Chads. Kevin and Melissa were greeted by their buddy, Scott Swearingen, who immediately insisted on them being separated. But he assured them, like, it's going to be fine. It's just what we need to do. And they trusted this guy. They had a rapport with this guy. So they brought Melissa into a conference room. And they're like, we'll be right with you. And they shut the door and locked it and left her alone in there for over three hours. Kevin was brought to an interrogation room, put in the corner of this tiny crappy room, and a team of detectives just immediately started laying into him and interrogating him. Now, everything I'm about to tell you is Kevin and Melissa's account of what happened, just so you know where the information is coming from. And if you're wondering why I'm not using the recording of the interrogation, it's because there wasn't one. And you know what sucks? It's just a few months after this happened, it became Illinois state law that interrogations needed to be recorded. But at this time, it wasn't. And that blows. So they're asking Kevin, why did you call the non-emergency line and not 911? Tyler told us that you were doing laundry in the middle of the night. Why were you doing that? He also said you went outside. And did you know that we have footage of you in your car outside the mobile station at 4 a.m.? Hmm? 
And this security footage is so grainy and terrible. You can't get a license plate number. You can't see the license plate. You can't see the make or model or color of the car. But they didn't show Kevin the footage. They just told him they had it. So he's thinking, oh, they have my car on camera? This is the first time he's heard about the car, about anything that Tyler said. He's super confused. And they tell him, oh, you're a suspect. We we think you're involved. And Kevin is pissed. And after three hours, Melissa, she snapped alone in that room and she starts trying to kick the door down to get out of that conference room. And just when she starts kicking the door, that's when her buddy Scott shows up and takes her to a room adjoining Kevin's. And this is where he tells Melissa that Kevin is a suspect. And Scott tells Melissa about all of the evidence they have. And then he lays out this theory of what they think happened on the night Riley was killed. He says he believes Kevin accidentally killed Riley, panicked, and decided to sexually assault his own daughter and stage it as a kidnapping and murder. What? Melissa was like, that is the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard. <laughs> He's CPR certified, for one. If if he injured Riley or killed her, he would have tried to resuscitate her. He would have checked her pulse, checked for breathing. Like, the autopsy showed that she was alive when she went in the water. Like, this is all just so stupid. By now, Kevin's father is there, and he's on the phone with brother Chad, and Chad's telling him, you need to get Kevin and Melissa out of there. They need to walk out right now. Like, they need to stop answering questions. So Kevin's dad is, like, talking to the detectives. He's like, I need to see my son. You need to get him out of there. You need to bring him out to me. And they keep telling the dad he is a 27-year-old man. He came to this interrogation of his own free will. And Kevin says that he several times asked for a lawyer and asked for his father. And every time he asked, they would say, you're a 27-year-old man. You don't need your father. Obviously, the detectives denied that this happened. By midnight, and Kevin has been awake since 4.30 in the morning. By midnight, they stopped asking questions. And they're just like, look, we know that you killed your daughter. And the only way to prove your innocence is by taking a polygraph test. If you pass the polygraph test, it proves you're innocent and you can go home. If you fail, you're going to be charged with first-degree murder and you're going to jail for 30 to life. That, that's not how that works. But Kevin obviously knows he's innocent and he kind of feels like he doesn't really have an option here. So he agrees to take the polygraph test. And just before 1 a.m., the test begins and it lasts an hour. After the test, the polygraph noob says, as for the test, you failed. As for the murder of Riley, you did it. It's okay to say you did it. Melissa is then told that Kevin failed the polygraph test. And she's like, bullshit, show me. Show me he failed. So they take Melissa into the room with Kevin and the polygraph test. And they just show her the screen with like all the wavy lines. And they're like, see that? See that red? That's failed. Later, an expert with Kevin's defense team said that the test was actually inconclusive, probably because the polygraph tester was a noob. Melissa doesn't believe that Kevin did this. Melissa doesn't believe that Kevin failed the test. And so she reaches out and touches Kevin's leg and she's like, it's going to be okay. And he's like, I swear to God, I didn't do this. And she goes, I believe you. And I guess lead detective Ed Hayes did not like this very much. And it pissed him off because he got in Melissa's face and screamed in her face, your husband's a fucking liar. Your husband killed your fucking daughter. He never loved you or your fucking daughter. And he killed her. And you need to learn to fucking get over it. 
holy shit. Melissa was shocked, terrified. She started shaking and crying. I I would have melted into the floor and died. I would not have been able to handle that. I can't even handle it when I'm going the speed limit and there is a squad car behind me. But Melissa manages to say to him, do not talk like that about my family and my husband. But Detective Hayes says, well, he failed the test. He's going to jail forever. Bye. And he just brings Kevin back into the interrogation room. So they're back in the interrogation room and Ed Hayes is just filling out an arrest sheet for first degree murder right in front of Kevin. And Detective Guilfoyle is just banging his handcuffs on the table, staring Kevin down. And Ed Hayes is going, you don't have much time. If I finish this sheet, if I finish filling this out, it's too late. And you're going to jail for 30 to life for first degree murder. And then Hayes leans forward and whispers to Kevin that he knows people in the jail and that he's going to make sure he gets fucked every day unless he tells him what he wants to hear. Then Detective Rudiger straddles Kevin, puts his testicles on his knee grabs the back of Kevin's shirt and pulls his face close and screams, your family doesn't love you, so just say you did it. Then he slams the crime scene photo of Riley down on the table, like the picture that was taken right after she was pulled out of the creek. She had duct tape over her mouth, dirt on her face, and nothing from the waist down. They put it on the table right in front of Kevin, and then Rudiger goes, Riley's here in the room with us now. She's in pain and she needs closure. That is the most fucked up thing. And at this point, Kevin didn't even know all of the details about what happened to Riley. Like he hadn't seen crime scene photos. He hadn't seen her body. He didn't know she was found with no bottoms. Like it, it's just, it's just awful. Kevin was sobbing. There's a picture of his dead daughter on the table. He's got balls on his knee. He's been interrogated for like 12 hours at this point. He had been awake for over 24 hours, no food, no sleep. And just then Scott Swearingen bursts into the room out of breath and says that he just came from Jeffrey Tomzak's office who says, if you plead guilty right now, it'll be involuntary manslaughter. Kevin says that Swearingen suggested that he plead guilty to the same accident scenario that he had presented to Melissa nine hours ago. He told him it's now or never, and that if he pled guilty right now, he would get involuntary manslaughter, and that would be a sentence of three to five years, but he'd do half. Plead guilty right now, and you can go home right now on bond. Promising leniency to confess was and is forbidden under Illinois law, but this wasn't recorded, so... It's Kevin's word against the detectives. But Kevin, seeing no way out, agrees to plead guilty. Now, before you start screaming, why would you do that? Why would you confess to something you didn't do? (laughs) I mean, it's easy for us to say that right now. But later, Kevin would describe this moment like he was in a burning room and there was one doorway out. He had been up for over 24 hours. He was completely exhausted. He'd been screamed at for over 12 hours. And they lied to him. They told him he failed the polygraph test. They told him he was going to get involuntary manslaughter and he could go home tonight. He thought if he just confessed to some ridiculous bullshit whatever, that he could go home, get some sleep, get a lawyer, and deal with it in the morning. But that's not the way it worked out. So at 8.32 a.m. after being awake for 28 hours, then detectives started filming. (laughs) They filmed the confession. He had been interrogated for 14 hours and 20 minutes of it was filmed. (laughs) 
And this is what this freaking confession is on paper. It's ridiculous. Okay, so Kevin brought the kids home around 1.30 a.m. Then he went into his bedroom to watch TV, including an adult video. Then around 2.15 a.m., he got up to go to the bathroom. And when he swung open the bathroom door, he swung it open really hard, not knowing Riley was standing there. And the bathroom door struck Riley in the head, and she fell and appeared lifeless. Kevin then panicked, scooped Riley up, and carried her out to the car. He saw duct tape on the back seat and thought, this is a great idea. I'll stage it as a kidnapping. So he duct taped Riley, drove her to Forsyth Woods, carried Riley to the creek, slipping in the mud on the way, and before throwing her in the creek, inserted a finger to make it look like it was a sexual assault. Then he went home, cried for a while, and then went to sleep. That is the craziest shit I have ever heard in my life. That is insane. Now, the recording of the confession was not released to the public, but Kevin's lawyer later got a copy of it. And basically, it was the detectives feeding him the confession line by line. And Kevin would just say, yeah or no. And then you put duct tape on her, right? Yeah. And then you drove to Forsyth Woods, right? Yeah. Like that was the whole confession. And Kevin later said that basically he went along with it because he's like, this confession is ridiculous. Like nobody's going to believe this. They're going to throw this out in five minutes. So Kevin signed the confession and he's like, all right, great. So can I go home now? And they're like, nope, you're under arrest for first degree murder. Book him. They handcuffed him and started leading him away. And as he's being led away to booking, Kevin can hear behind him all the detectives laughing and congratulating each other and high-fiving. He's brought down to central booking. He's photographed. He's printed. And as they're printing him, he hears somebody say, hey, we caught the baby Riley killer. And Kevin said he like started to look around like, oh, really? Who is it? Oh, fuck. It's me. He really thought he was going to go home. He really thought he was going home that night. And then as he's being booked, he's like, oh, my God, what have I done? Why did I do this? What did I just do? Like, why did I believe this? I can't believe I fell for this. They completely tricked me. Like, just everything just came flooding. It's just, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Chad, Kevin's brother, finds out that Kevin was just arrested, and he went straight to the lawyer, Kathleen Zellner, and hired her on his brother's behalf. Like, Chad. Chad. Such a great brother. And the two of them headed straight to the jail to see Kevin. And immediately, Kathleen Zellner said she was like, oh, this guy is innocent. Like, as soon as she met him, she didn't doubt for a second that this guy was innocent and he'd been tricked. Now, state's attorney Jeffrey Tomzak, he went off the rails, man. Tomzak had Kevin's bail set at $25 million. At the initial hearing, Tomzak said that Riley's autopsy proved that Riley went into the water alive and was kicking and fighting. But the forensic pathologist that did the autopsy later was like, mm, I never even talked to Tom Zach about my findings or my opinions. There's no evidence that she was kicking and fighting. Even the cause of death was likely drowning. Like it was pretty inconclusive. So he was just pulling shit out of his ass. But Tom Zach used that visual of Riley kicking and fighting in the water to then say, we're going for the death penalty. Then, six days after Kevin was arrested, the state's attorney election was over and Jeffrey Tomczak lost. I guess closing that case 
didn't make a difference for Tom Zack anyway. But Glasgow winning wasn't this big sigh of relief for everybody because Glasgow had already publicly stated that he was still going to go forward with this trial and they were still going to seek the death penalty. So the media and the public fully turned their backs on the Fox family because, I mean, like, right? He confessed. It it looked bad. People in town were pissed because they're like, man, I helped look for that little girl. And he... The dad is responsible? That's bullshit. And the Fox family was really villainized for defending Kevin, even though they were shouting from the rooftops that Kevin was tricked by the detectives. But people were very, why would you confess to something you didn't do? You know? Now, the family obviously wanted to get Kevin out on bail, but his bail was set at $25 million. Kathleen told the family, look, we need to put all of our efforts and our resources towards clearing Kevin's name. So Kevin was left in jail. Now, Kathleen needed to focus on the confession because that was her biggest obstacle. So she hired a private eye and an entire team to essentially reenact the entire confession to prove it was bullshit. There were obvious holes, like where were Riley's bottoms? There wasn't duct tape in Kevin's car. Where Kevin said that he threw her body into the water in the confession, they had a guy carry a 40-pound bag and follow the exact route that Kevin said he went on and throw the bag in the water. But with the currents, there was no way that the bag could have ended up where Riley was found. So, debunked. Also, if Kevin had slipped in the mud on the way down, his clothes would have been all muddy and there was no mud on any of Kevin's clothes. But, oh, Tyler did say he saw his dad do laundry in the middle of the night. But they checked the water meter and it proved that no water ran at all during that time frame. So no, Kevin didn't do laundry. Then they zeroed in on the bathroom door. Now the bathroom door was like a shitty, flimsy, hollow core, paper thin door. And they could not generate enough force with this shitty door to have done the damage that detectives say Riley's head sustained from the bathroom door. And Kathleen said it would have taken a hammer to do the damage that the detectives say this bathroom door did. So, debunked. So as Kathleen Zellner is building this case and trying to come up with a plan, Kevin misses Christmas, New Year's, his 28th birthday, and Kevin has to be moved to protective custody because he's getting daily death threats and threats of being raped in jail. Now, Kathleen also knew that even if she debunked the whole confession, she really could use some freaking DNA, right? Oh, yeah, there's DNA, right? What happened with that? Now, Tom Zack was in charge when the sample was initially sent to the FBI crime lab for testing, which had a nine-month backlog. But now, Glasgow's in charge, so things have changed hands. And as far as Glasgow understood it, there wasn't enough of a sample to test for DNA. So the FBI was going to be sending back the unusable sample within the week. Great. But Kathleen keeps reading through this paperwork and she's super puzzled by the word inconclusive. Like, why would they say that if they couldn't test it? So she calls a forensic scientist who tells her, oh, inconclusive. Well, that usually means that that lab doesn't have the right technology to test the sample. They may not have even tested it at all. You should call them. So Kathleen Zellner calls the lab and they're like, yeah, that's correct. We don't have the sophisticated technology to test this type of sample. But we actually didn't even try to test it. They didn't do anything with the sample because the day after the state's attorney election, the lab got a phone call saying, hey, we found the Riley Fox killer. So you can just go ahead and cancel those lab orders. You don't even have to test the samples. Thanks. And who made that call to cancel the lab order? Lead detective Ed Hayes. Ed? Edward? Bad job. 
You're bad at your job. That is criminal. So Kathleen Zellner gets a court order to have the sample sent from the FBI to a private crime lab in Virginia, Bode Technology Group, that does have the capabilities to test this type of sample. And they wait. And they wait. And three weeks goes by and she's like, what the fuck is going on with the sample? So she calls Bode and they're like, oh, we haven't gotten it yet. Turns out it was sent from the FBI just back to Joliet, Illinois, instead of being sent to Virginia. So they hadn't even gotten it. And who was responsible for this mix-up? Lead detective Ed Hayes. Ed, you're mad at your job. Bode finally gets the sample, but they're like, okay, it's going to take two months to test. (laughs) And it's not even a sure thing. And even if they get some sort of result from this sample, it's not the kind that you can run through a database and find the killer. This is just the kind of DNA that you can use to rule someone out. So we're doing all of this to hopefully show that Kevin does not match the DNA profile that we could possibly get from this spit. (laughs) I'm not kidding. It's June now. It has been a year since Riley was killed and they finally get the results and big shock. Kevin is not a match. Duh. And Kevin sat in jail for eight months. Glasgow ordered Kevin's immediate release after the official report came in from the lab and Kevin's family and friends met him outside of the courthouse wearing t-shirts that said test before arrest and 376 days of a killer on the loose. Kevin, Melissa and Tyler were reunited and they stayed with Chad and it was was bittersweet, dude. Like, yeah, Kevin got out, but they have to start the entire investigation over from scratch. It's been over a year and... (laughs) Hey, you know where they should start? Maybe with the evidence from the actual crime scene. (laughs) Now, while the investigation was restarted, Kathleen Zellner helped Kevin and Melissa file a federal civil rights lawsuit against the Will County Sheriff's Department. In the meantime, Kevin and Melissa had Riley's Garden built in Wilmington to honor their daughter, full of flowers that attract butterflies that were Riley's favorite. Kevin and Melissa had their third child, a daughter named Tegan, and that was bittersweet too because... Of course, they were happy to have a healthy daughter, but it just sucks knowing that Riley wasn't going to get to be a big sister. The lawsuit dragged on for years. There was initially nine defendants on the lawsuit, but three of them were removed for whatever reason. Mary Jane Pluth, the shitty child advocacy bitch (laughs) that interviewed Tyler. Richard Williams, the polygraph noob. And Detective David Dobrowski, who apparently had very little to do with the interrogation. So those three were taken off. I'm pretty pissed about Mary Jane Pluth being taken off. I hope Mary Jane has a rock in her shoe for all of eternity. Shockingly, and I feel like I never get to say this, they won. They won their lawsuit. A jury found the Will County Sheriff's Department guilty in 2007 of false arrest and malicious prosecution. Initially, they were awarded $15.5 million, but that was later reduced in 2010 in appeals court down to $8 million. But still, they, they won. So as you can see, the fucking years are going by. So in 2009, and Riley was killed in 2004, Glasgow, yes, still Glasgow, reaches out to the FBI. Initially, the FBI was like, nah, we don't want to take on this case. But one special agent, Lori Warren, had been following this case. And she went to her superiors. She was like, you gotta let me take on this case. Lori... She assembles a team of 30 agents to descend on Wilmington, Illinois, to try and solve this Riley Fox case. The Fox family announced a $100,000 reward, which was something the Will County Sheriff's Department told them 
was not necessary. And the FBI began a very extensive neighborhood canvas. While questioning people, the FBI ended up questioning Trisha Kiefer, I think is how you say her name. Trisha said that her and her boyfriend at the time, who she described as creepy and a bad person, were walking around Riley's garden. And Trisha said to her boyfriend, I can't believe somebody did that to a sweet little girl. To which the boyfriend replied, oh, that was such a shame, wasn't it? And Trisha said the way he said it was so cold and emotionless. And he said it like an actor reading a script who was a bad actor. And it just gave her chills down her spine and it just stuck with her. Now, Trisha's ex-boyfriend was a man named Scott Ebby. When the FBI tracked him down, they found him in Southern Illinois in prison. Scott Ebby, who lived about a mile away from the Fox's home in 2004, was a 38-year-old sex offender who was serving out two seven-year sentences for sexually assaulting a family member. Yikes. The FBI questioned Scott in jail, and he was very cooperative and polite. He said he remembered his whereabouts on that date, and he was not involved. So the agents shook his hand and left. And as they were walking out, Agent Lori Warren said, That was the clammiest fucking hand I've ever felt in my life. After the FBI agents left, Scott Ebby called his mother from jail and insisted that she come visit him right away. When she asked him why, he said, quote, I'm fixing to spend the rest of my life in the penitentiary, Mom. Only thing I can tell you is that the FBI came to see me today. You got to come down here, Mom, so I can give you a hug and a kiss one last time. Please. End quote. Then Scott went back to his cell and wrote out a 10-page confession and then attempted suicide with a bedsheet. He was unsuccessful. In the note he left, he confessed to the kidnapping, sexual assault, and murder of three-year-old Riley Fox in 2004. Yep. And he blamed his demented actions on his drug and alcohol abuse, as well as insecurities about his body. When Scott Ebby had recovered, the FBI agents went to go interview him about the Riley Fox confession. And Scott said that on the night in question, Scott was on parole and he was super drunk and super high on cocaine. And he got the urge to go break into some houses because that was his thing. He was wearing a mask and he broke into the house across the street from the Foxes by cutting the screen. He stole $40 cash, and then he left and went over to the Fox's house. He tried the back door, and it opened right up because the lock was broken. He said he didn't find anything of value to steal in the house, and he was about to walk out the front door when he noticed the kids sleeping in the living room. And something made him fixate on Riley, and he decided to take her. So he went outside and pulled his red Chevy Beretta into the Fox's driveway, walked back in the house, picked up Riley and put her in the trunk of his red Chevy Beretta and drove to Forsyth Woods. He sexually assaulted her in the Forest Preserve bathroom and threw her bottoms into the trash can. The police never searched or processed that bathroom for any evidence. They never even went inside. Now, at this point, Scott realized that his mask had slipped down and Riley was looking right at his face. So he panicked, thinking, she saw my face, she's going to ID me, and that's when he decided to kill her. Which is so fucking stupid. He said as he carried her to the creek, her last words were, I want my daddy. That is the worst ever. After, Scott took off his white high-top sneakers and threw them into the creek. Do you remember the sneakers? Do you remember? What letters were written on the inside tongue of those sneakers? E-B-Y. Scott Ebby. It wasn't even initials. It was his full goddamn last name. And those sneakers were still, after all these years, sitting on a shelf 
never tested, never examined. Why? Because when the initial detectives had zeroed in on Kevin immediately, they asked Melissa what size shoe Kevin wore. And he wasn't the same size as these sneakers. And Kevin was obviously the killer. So they decided these sneakers have nothing to do with the Riley Fox case. And they were just put on a shelf and ignored. (sighs) And Scott even said, oh, I, I really was ready for people to come and find me the next day because I had forgotten that my name was written on the inside of the shoes. But nobody came. Crazy. (laughs) Oh, my God. Scott also confirmed that at 4 a.m. he drove his red Chevy Beretta to the mobile station. It was his car on that security footage. So they were right. It was the killer on that security footage, but it wasn't Kevin's blue Ford Escape. It was Scott Ebby in his red Chevy Beretta. That tells you how shitty that footage was. That morning, after killing Riley, Scott called a friend and left a voicemail saying, by the time you hear this message, I will be dead. And then he went home and attempted suicide by swallowing a bunch of oxycodone. That friend, concerned, called the police. And the police went and did a wellness check on Scott Ebby right then. The cops spoke to Scott Ebby the morning of Riley's disappearance. And I'm not kidding you. Scott is barfing in the toilet and he asks the cops that show up, did they find that little girl Riley Fox yet? And then he threw up again. And the cops didn't think that was important, relevant, didn't write it down. They even responded like a week later when Scott Ebby went on his roof with a rope around his neck, too. So twice they talked to this guy. Big shock. Scott Ebby's DNA matched the sample found on Riley, and he pled guilty to first-degree murder and predatory sexual assault in 2010. Took him almost seven years to solve that one. Kevin and Melissa didn't want the death penalty to be imposed, so life in prison without parole it is. So it was finally over. But sadly, the absolute nightmare that the family went through was too much for the marriage to bear, and Kevin and Melissa ended up getting a divorce. They both remarried and had wonderful families, and they remained close and supportive of each other and co-parented their two children. Melissa once said that even though she went through such an unimaginable tragedy, because of it, she was able to more easily see the light and the good in the world. Riley would be 22 years old today if she was still alive. And sadly, as I was researching this case, I came across a couple of articles that said Kevin Fox actually died just a few weeks ago. Kevin was killed in a car accident on March 20th, 2023 in Arkansas when another car came into his lane and they hit head on and both Kevin and the other driver were killed. Awful. Kevin was 46. My condolences go out to Kevin's friends and family and everyone that loved him. And rest in peace to Riley Fox, who died way too young at the hands of an absolute monster. And a shout out to Chad. You're an absolute legend and a great brother. What an absolute nightmare this entire family went through. And this case could have been solved so quickly if they would have just tested the DNA and looked inside the shoes. (laughs) It's infuriating. So... That is the story of the tragic murder of three-year-old Riley Fox and the ridiculous, infuriating aftermath. Thank you so much, Candy, for recommending this case to me. You are mean. I'm just, I'm kidding. It was incredibly interesting and infuriating, and it was, I think, an important case to cover. Thank you for listening to the Cleaning and Crime podcast. If you would like more content for me or if you want to see the cleaning side of things, check me out on YouTube, TikTok, or follow my socials, all of which are under the same name, C. Elise. If you have any questions or case ideas to share, email me at cealiseclean at gmail.com. 
If you like what you heard, feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you guys back here next week for a new true crime story. Mwah! These episodes include my personal opinions, and all information is compiled by me using references that are publicly available. Sources are included in the show notes. All parties discussed are innocent until proven guilty. See you next time. Oh,